Today we're going to be talking about, if you want a title, it's Time to Change. There was a, a hillbilly family came from the, the middle of nowhere, very rural area, farming community. They'd never been in the city in their entire life. And uh, they kind of parked the horses outside this hotel. And uh, before the rest of the family walked in, in walked Papa. And Papa walked into the foyer. He saw a really old lady kind of creak her way into the doors of this elevator. The doors closed and minutes later, the doors open. Out walks this beautiful woman. And he shouts, Baba, bring your mum. <laughs> Put her in that machine. It's time to change. Some of us like change, some of us don't like change. None of us finds change easy. Um, but today I'm going to be talking to you from Ephesians, from Ephesians chapter 4, specifically about the importance of life change. If you've become a believer in Jesus, a revolution has already taken place in your life. If you've not yet crossed the line and made the commitment to follow Jesus, I want to urge you to allow God to do a revolution in your life today. Before we get into the verses in Ephesians, I want to illustrate this because what Paul's talking about has to be understood in the context of the journey that all humanity has been on since time began. So I'm just going to get some volunteers up front here to help me illustrate the journey of mankind. So I need five volunteers. Graham Martin, Alex Sebastian, and Tawanda. Thanks for volunteering, guys. Let's hear it for our volunteers. So willing, just up for it straight away. As soon as I mentioned volunteers, pick me, pick me. Right, just stand in a line here. And this here is Adam. Okay? Now, you might think, well, how is that Adam? Well, in the Bible it says that we have a spirit, a soul, and a body. Every human being has three parts to them. You have a spirit. That's the inner you. It's your conscience. It's the eternal bit that when you die, you're you're no longer in that body. You are gone. What's gone? Your spirit's gone. It's the inner you, your spirit. It's a bit that God radically changes when you become a believer. Then you have a soul. It's your mind, your will, and your emotions. And then you have a body. A body. And that's the physical bit of you. That's the bit that's obvious. So let's, illustrating this here, we have spirit. Give us a wave, spirit. We have soul. Give us a wave, soul. And we have body. Give me a wave, body. So Sebastian represents God. He is Adam. This is spirit, soul, and body. And here is the devil. Mm. he's God okay now at the beginning of time Adam turn and face God in in the beginning of time mankind had a relationship with God and our relationship was spiritual Our, our connection was from our heart right in our spirit and our heart our emotions and our minds and everything were engaged with that relationship with God. Therefore, there was, there was no depression. There was no confusion. There was no upset. There was peace and joy. And our body just did as it was told. It was our vehicle to get us from A to B. It was the, thing in, it is the, it is the body in which God put us to enjoy the world. Now, Satan knew that he couldn't undermine mankind by attacking him in the spiritual realm. Because spiritually, we were strongly attached to God. So Satan comes with an apple or in fruit. There it is. It's like we're there, isn't it? Look at that. Wow. Acting ability. <laughs> nice, Graham. Okay. And what he does is he, he taps Adam on the shoulder and he, he gets the attention of mankind <laughs> by attacking mankind in the flesh. And it was a very physical thing. And the Bible says when Eve saw the fruit, she saw it was desirable. It got her physical attention. And then the soul took notice and a decision was made. At that point, the spirit died. <laughs> That's good. That was, have you asked? I'm going to try that again. It's a trial run, okay? A very dramatic death, was it? No, it wasn't dramatic. Okay, so Satan tempts mankind. Mankind agrees to it in his, in his mind, will, and emotions. He says, I'm going to do that. At that point, the spirit died. <laughs> it's better. And see, when the Bible says outside, of, when it says outside of Christ you were dead, we were confused about that because we're still walking around. I can remember before I was a believer in Christ, I didn't feel dead. I had emotions. I had decisions I made. I had dreams for the future. Physically, I was enjoying life. 
But I did know that on the inside of me, there was a bit that should be alive that was not alive. And it was a relationship with God. Now, the good news is, Jesus comes, deals with the devil, resurrects the man. And now, we can have eternal life. We're reconnected with God through Jesus. And then, but the problem is, in life, we're constantly doing this. God? No, no, do that. God? Do that. So we're constantly, should I, shouldn't I? Well, I serve God. Oh, I want to do that. No, no, I'm going to serve God. I give my life to him. But that looks so nice. Okay. And follow God. So we're confused. And that's the journey as human beings we're on until one day we're going to meet God. And that peace will come and we'll no longer have confusion. We'll no longer have that battle. Some of you are very aware of this battle. You're so aware of this battle. Who's aware of that battle? Man, that's a big battle. Let's hear it for our volunteers. Thanks, guys. So let's, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4 with that in mind. And we're going to start reading in verse 17. Now, Paul's using the word Gentiles to refer to unbelievers. Okay? It wasn't that anyone who wasn't a Jew was an unbeliever. He's just using it as a, as a term. Instead of the, the term Gentile, we're going to use the word Scot. Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Scots do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. Now we described that earlier. Rejection of God. There's a, there's a hardness of heart. There's a death of that heart. There's an insensitivity to God. They have become callous and they've given themselves to sensuality, greedy, to to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you've learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirits of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Father, I pray today, as we look at these verses in uh, Ephesians, I pray that you'd speak right into our hearts. I pray, God, you'd bring clarity. I pray you'd bring freedom. And I pray, God, you would touch every person here. No matter who they are, God, I pray them bring them close to you. God, I pray you'd speak to us now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul, while he's talking about the Gentiles, he's not primarily writing this to challenge the behavior of the unchurched world. Sadly, that's what many churches spend their time doing. They spend their time ranting and raving about the baddies outside the church. That wasn't Paul's business. That was, that was not Paul's agenda. Paul was, his agenda was challenging Christians who were living like the unchurched. He wasn't trying to challenge the unchurched. He was writing to challenge the Christians who should know better and who were living like the unchurched. I'm going to take you on a three-step journey today. The first step, I'm going to talk about our life without God. That's, we're going to look at the verses at the beginning of the verses where Paul talks about how we're away from God. The next step I want to talk about is the, how our lives were turned around when we met God. And then the third step we're going to talk about is that confusion that we described earlier where we're wanting to do God's will but we're so often drawn the other way. It's called the renewing of our minds. So part one, life without God. Paul here identifies for us four thought patterns in a person who lives without God. And this is an important point to make. Did you know that your behavior comes from your beliefs? Did you know that? What you believe is, gives us the reason why you behave the way you do. That's a fact. You go look at why you behave in a certain way, we're going to find somewhere down the roads a belief that you have that results in that behavior. And before we talk about the behavior of people who live without God, let's look at the beliefs they have. It ha- it, he identifies four of them in verses 17 to 18. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from, from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and due to the hardness of their heart. There are patterns of internal behavior in people who live without God, the results in their external behavior. Now, that's why we, you see people around you 
and you, you, the people justify their behavior by their thinking. So you say, why do you gossip about your husbands? And you say, oh, well, he's just, he's a layabout. He's a good for nothing. Well, you're, you're just telling us what you believe about him there. Why do you flirt with other women? You're a married man. Well, she's cold to me. She's unemotional with me. Well, you've believed certain things and you're acting a certain way. Why are you dabbling with porn on the internet? Well, it's, it's a way of getting temporary satisfaction without actually hurting anyone. You're revealing a belief system that is resulting in an action. And here Paul indicates there are four beliefs in people who are not walking with God's that result in negative actions. First belief is they have futility in their minds. Empty passions, empty desires, empty agendas. The second thing is they've got, they're darkened in their understanding. The second thing it says they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. How tragic. Alienated, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And then it says there's a hardness of their heart. The word hardness of heart there is the Greek word porosin, which comes from the word porous, which means a stone that is harder than marble. It's describing a heart that's become so hard it's petrified, hardened. It had medical uses in, its, in the time, and the medical uses using this word porous was describing a chalk stone that can be formed in someone's joints that can literally harden up in the joints and cause literal paralysis in joints. It describes a callus that forms when a bone is broken and the, 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 the fused part of bone, the callus that's formed, is actually harder than the bone was in the first place. It also described the person's loss of sensation, inability to feel. They've become so hardened, no ability to sense or feel what's right or wrong. When the Bible talks about someone who's walked away from God, it's describing someone whose heart has become solidified, and hardens, and as a result, there's a coldness, there's a lack of feeling. They no longer feel anything towards God. The idea of not being connected with God doesn't even fill them with sadness. It's just a simple fact of reality, and they, they're not bothered. The New English Bible translates it. It says, in their minds, they have grown as hard as stone. You see, sin goes on a journey. Sin initially is horrifying. It's, why did I do that? After several times of compromising, sin becomes, oh, well, I'm just going to have to live with this. And you start accepting. And then before you know it, you feel nothing. You become callous. Your heart has become petrified. You're unmoved. You're totally desensitized to the issue. Um, the great theologian Madonna described this journey. On music TV, MTV, she was interviewed about her dream for MTV and she said that MTV's goal is to change the youth culture of the world. She went on to say, at first, when they see perversion in the music videos and immorality of all kinds of debauchery that are in the videos on MTV, whether it be Estonia, Bulgaria, Zimbabwe, Mexico, Asia, or Africa, or Europe, or America, she says, when they see this first, they will be nauseated by it. But when they see it the second time, they see this gross diabolical perversion of things, they will start treating it in a way, well, that's normal life for some people. The third time, it won't bother them. And the fourth time, they'll become numb to it. The fifth time they see it, they may begin to think about it, imagine it, fantasize about it. And the sixth time, they may even experiment with it. Thus, the goal of music TV is to change youth culture around the world. The journey of sin is very subtle, but we can identify with it. So Paul says there are four attitudes in someone without God and, it's a, and they're on a journey. It results in a hardened heart. <clears throat> but then it goes on to talk about the two actions that result because we, we, as I said at the beginning, our beliefs determine how we act. The two actions that Paul identifies is this, two behavior patterns in a person living without God. Verse 19, they've become callous and they've given themselves up to sensuality Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Okay, there's two big words being used there. Horrible words. It says they've given themselves up to sensuality. And this is the Greek words, selgia, which means, it's defined by one writer as preparedness for every pleasure. It was defined by Basil the Great, 
as a disposition of the soul incapable of bearing the pain of discipline. The great characteristic of aselgia is that people usually try and hide from their sin, but someone with aselgia on the soul does not care how much public opinion is shocked as long as the person personal desires are gratified. In other words, it's gone from being a secret thing they're ashamed of to being something they don't care if anyone knows about anymore. They've given themselves to sensuality. It's like many of you who have struggled with drug addictions in the past. You've struggled in secret, dabbled with lightweight stuff. It was experimental. It was fun. It it took away a bit of your emotional pain before you know it. And, And it was all secret. You didn't want your parents to see. You didn't want those around you to know. But then before you know it, it's got a grip of you. And before you know it, you've given yourself over to it. And now you're shooting up in public. It's gone somewhere you never wanted it to go. It's like my friend who's a pastor. He was speaking at a church conference. Um, and in this Christian conference, a guy came to him and introduced to my friend his wife and his girlfriend. Two people. And, and he said, this is a Christian conference. You're telling me you've got a wife and a girlfriend. And he said, well, let me tell you what happens. Uh, my marriage was really in a bad way. I wasn't getting what I wanted out of this marriage. So my, and I, I had decided, I was almost at the point, I was going to leave my wife and go and find what I wanted elsewhere <clears throat> and leave my kids. But my wife, just before this happened, agreed that I could have a girlfriend as a way of outletting my desires. So I'm, and this is the thing that saved our marriage. And my friend replied, so you're telling me that adultery saved your marriage. It went from being something that was shameful and horrified to a point where someone's given themselves to something to the point where in Christian conferences they're announcing as if it's nothing strange. It is strange. The next word is greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And the word greedy here is, I'm going to try and pronounce this, plenonexia, which is a terrible word, defined by the Greeks as arrogant greediness. The accursed love of possessing. The unlawful desire for things that belong to others. It is the attitude which always is ready to sacrifice others to their own desires, trampling on others to get what they want. The New English Bible translates it as they stop at nothing to satisfy their foul desire. And we see this around us in our world. There's, there's, a, there's a huge emphasis in our world on our sexuality. And you know, the, the, the spin we're given is you need to get sex and you need to get this because it'll make you feel good about yourself and it'll give you an identity. Now, sex is great. It's from God. You should have lots of it within marriage. It's great. But when it's sold cheaply, the emphasis is entirely different to the Bible's emphasis. The Bible is not against sex. The Bible's totally into it and it encourages it a lot, but within a context. And the world's version of sex is different. And the world's version of sex is get. The Bible's version of sex is give. You see, the difference between lust and love is lust gets, but love gives. Are you in this experience in order to bless, or are you in this experience in order to take what you can from that person? And as a result, we're living in a culture where people go from partner to partner to partner to partner to partner, taking, 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 taking one of the most precious things, incidentally, Taking, taking, taking. Nothing about giving, everything about getting. You see, we're living in a culture that likes the benefits without the responsibilities. We like shacking up and having sex and all that without the responsibility of saying, I'm going to be committed to you for life. I will financially underwrite your life. I am legally binding myself to you in marriage, before God and also before man. We like the benefits without responsibilities. And it's getting what you want. We see it in the business world. This greediness, this agenda of I'm going to get what I want no matter how many people I tread upon. So we have people fighting up the rungs of what they consider success to the point where they're at a place where they've fought their way up. They've trampled on many people to get there. And here they are, now they're, they're at the top, but they got there by their own greedy desires and agendas. William Barclay commenting on this, these words, he says this, Talking about Paul, he said, He saw humans' hearts so turned to stone that they were not even aware that they were sinning. He saw people so dominated by sin that all the sense of shame was lost, decency was forgotten. He saw men and women 
so much at the mercy of their desires that they do not care whose lives they injured and whose innocence they are destroying as long as those desires were satisfied. And you think, well, Paul, why did you write to a Christian church to tell them this? And why would I spend the first 10 minutes of this message telling you this? And I believe that Paul was writing this for one agenda. He says in verse 17, Now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Destiny Church Edinburgh, this I say and I testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the world walks. You must no longer walk that way. And that's why Paul's writing. And you think, well, that church, this is a different environment here. Is it? Barna and Gallup, they, their research bodies, specifically based in America, and they did research and they published it, I think it was in their book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Minds. And in that book, it reveals that research on Christian evangelicals was this, that their Christian evangelicals in the United States are just as likely to adopt lifestyles that are just as materialistic, hedonistic, and sexually as moral, immoral as those outside the church. Apparently, according to their research, they found that divorce is more common among born-again Christians in America than among the general public. And in the research, they also discovered that white evangelicals are more likely to object to neighbors of a different race than other people. So Paul writes and says, Now I testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So church, Peter, congregation, we must deal with our hypocrisy. We must walk in a way that brings honor to God. We must walk in a way that lines up with who we say we are. Our actions look the same. Stop living the worldly life. Repent. Deal with it. That's what Paul is saying. Mahatma Gandhi was put off Christianity by people who claimed to be Christian. He decided as a student in, in South Africa to go to a church to learn about God because he had been interested in Jesus. And he turned up at the church that one day and there was a big white South African there and he barred his entry, refused him to come in. He said, we don't like people like you coming here. And he was there because he wanted to find out about Jesus. And Mahatma Gandhi said about Christians, he said, when he was asked by one Christian missionary, why are you not a Christian? Because you obviously admire Jesus. And Gandhi's reply was this, your Christians are so unlike your Christ. John the Baptist's challenge in Matthew 3, 8 says this, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Is the fruit of your life line up with the life change you said you had gone through? If you have repented from living your way and started living God's way and your actions do not confirm that, then we question the validity of your conversion or of my conversion. The only proof of past conversion is present convertedness. And if that's not there, then I question where you're at with God. Are you walking with God? That's Paul's challenge. Part two, true conversion, repentance. Life change. It's a past event. Okay, verses 20 to 22 and verse 24. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and then skip a verse, verse 24, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul here uses an analogy of taking off, like taking off clothes, taking off your old self and putting on your new self. The question is, well, when did that happen? Because he kind of says it in the English language, it sounds like he's talking about present tense. And in one sense, he wants us to think about it in present tense. But he, if you, if you, the, this is where we miss a bit here. In the original Greek language, the verbs used here are talking about a past event. He's talking about the event that took place the moment you came to Jesus, as it says, when you learned about him and were taught in him and you believed in Jesus. There was a moment where you said, I'm going to stop going my way. I'm going to start going God's way. That was the moment he's talking about here. He said, in that moment, you took off your old self and put on your new self. That's confirmed in Colossians 3, 8 to 10, where he says, you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk with you from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices 
and you have put on the new self, which has been renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. How does that life change take place? How do you change, I mean, how do you change yourself? Can you change yourself? Can you say, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull up my sleeves here, I'm going to do something about my sinful life, I'm going to start living God's way instead? Are you able to do that? Okay, I believe it's a human and divine partnership. When someone's life changes authentically, there's a bit that the human being has been involved with and there's a bit that God did. The fact is, you cannot create a new self. You can't. God does that. Verse 24 says, the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Created. God did it. God made you a new person. But what did you do? Well, this is your part. In verse 22 and verse 24, it says you put off your old self and you put on your new self. You made a decision. I'm going to stop going my way. I'm going to start going God's way. But in the moment that you made the decision, or before the moment, or in the middle of that moment, somewhere in that moment, God also made a decision and he made you a new person. It's like you're walking along and you see this mountain and then all of a sudden you have this deep desire, I want to go up that mountain. And you make, it, you, you make a decision, I'm going to climb the mountain. I'm no longer going to live in this plane, I'm going to climb the mountain. And you make a choice and you reach out your arm to take the first grip on that rock face and you say, I'm going to start climbing this mountain. You've made a decision, you're determined. And before your hand even touches the rock face, another hand grabs yours and pulls you up. It's like your decision gave God permission to do what he's always wanted to do for you. Ultimately, the kind of life change that God is talking about here, where you literally become a new person, you literally come alive on the inside, you can't conjure that up. No level of self-discipline can produce that. You can't turn over a new leaf and come up with that. Some of you are more disciplined than others, but ultimately we need God's help. We give him permission by saying, I'm going to go God's way. At that point, God reaches down, picks us up. Furthermore, even the ability to repent, according to the Bible, is a gift of God. It says in 2 Timothy 2.25, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. This is one of many verses in the New Testament that says that even the ability to turn is a gift of God. So what does that mean? Okay, right, let's take the analogy. You're walking along on the plains. You see the mountain. But before you saw the mountain, someone threw a rock at you from the mountain. Oh, there's a mountain. God threw the rock. All right, well, I'm going to go up that mountain. God, see, when I look at my, how my life turned around when I was 15, God was on my case. Now, I see it in retrospect. I see years before the day I decided as a 15-year-old to follow God, and I really decided that decision. And God empowered me to decide with such determination. But leading up to that, God was on my case. God was sending people along my path. I was having dreams. I was coming across things. I was meeting people. People were challenging me. Stuff was happening. And then it was like when I was 15, that was the kind of long end of the process where I said, okay, it's like you're walking along the mountain, hit by stones or the ground underneath is crumbling. You think, man, I need to get on the mountain. And for whatever reason, you come to the point where you say, I'm going to get up that mountain. And you reach out then before you realize it, a hand grabs you, pulls you up. It's a divine and human partnership. You made a decision that God gave, gave God permission to move in your life, but also God was moving in your life even before you made the decision. Wow. So what happened to you the moment you repented, the moment you put off your old self and put on your new self? What took place in that moment, spiritually speaking? We acted out earlier. We said how we saw Alex was representing the spirit person and they came alive at that point. But what actually took place according to the Bible? Here's three things. When you repented, you were eternally saved. It says, Jesus, in Luke 13, 2 to 3, Jesus answered, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Repentance saves you eternally. Lack of repentance will result in you perishing eternally. That's not very popular, but it doesn't mean it's not true. A picture to understand is, imagine you're in a river. The current is so strong and you'll be swept along and you're oblivious to it. You don't even feel the current. You see, when you're going with the current, you don't even feel it. Only when you take a stance do you feel the current. 
But you're just going with the flow. You don't feel the flow. And not aware to you, but without realizing it, there's a waterfall coming. It's like an Indiana Jones film. There's a waterfall coming. And you're oblivious to it. <laughs> Whoa. Unless you likewise repent, you will perish. That's a bit lighthearted, but in seriousness, Edinburgh's in a sticky wicket. It needs God. It's living in its futility of its mind. It even uses the intelligence that God gave them to argue a case against the God who gave them the intelligence. It's heading to a lostness. When you repent, you say, God, and you suddenly realize the truth. It come, the lights come on. And now many of you notice you feel the current at that point. You didn't feel the current before. See, becoming a believer is not the easy option. It takes more muscle to fight against the current. You, all of a sudden you feel pressures. You, didn't, you, you know, previously, if you felt like sinning, you just did it. Now you think, no, I, I want to please God. Now you've got a battle inside your soul. Well, praise God. Comfort yourself in your battle knowing that you're on the winning team. When you repent, God changes your heart. We said earlier that your heart became petrified, solid. But when you repent, God changes your heart. It says in Ezekiel 36, 26, I, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. Heart and spirit are often described as the same thing in the Bible. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. A soft heart. All of a sudden, when you, when, you, when you put off your old self and took on your new self, you suddenly had a heart that was alive to God. You suddenly had feelings about God. Now, you still had the doubts in the soul. You still had your confusions, certainly. But deep in the inside of you, something had come alive and you knew it. And you, you know there's a God. You know you're his child. And while you're struggling to figure it all out, in your heart, you're alive and you're soft. You've got hard flesh. And then when you repented, he gave, gives you an incredible gift. And the gift is called righteousness and holiness. Listen, it says, verse 24, Ephesians 4. Put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. That's amazing. He gives you a gift called righteousness and holiness. Now, I don't always feel that. I'll phrase that again. I never feel that. And you're all worse sinners than me. So I don't know how you even feel it. But the Bible says he's given us this gift of righteousness and holiness. What's that about? My favorite verse in the whole Bible. I say that about most of the verses in the Bible. But this one beats them all. 2 Corinthians 5.21. 1, 2, 3, all together. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see... God and his love for humanity saw the broken relationship that we had with him and God took personal responsibility for that. God came, was born of a virgin. Jesus Christ walked this earth. He died in the cross. In the moment as he was dying in the cross, what was going on behind the scenes was far greater. The physical anguish, the physical pain was something. I mean, it was incredible. The physical pain of the cross was unparalleled to any other torture method. It was unparalleled. The emotional pain of the cross the humiliation of hanging naked, being spat at and cursed upon, was unparalleled. Especially considering this was God being put on the cross by his creation. But what was even greater than the physical and the emotional impact and the pain of the cross was the spiritual reality of what was taking place in those moments. What was taking place in those moments was the sin of the world was being placed on the sinless Savior. He who knew no sin became sin that's what took place the reason i know that the anguish of that was greater than the anguish of the even cross was because hours before when he was in gethsemane his sweat became like blood on his forehead before a nail had been put in his hands before a whip had hit his back before any abuse had taken place he was in utter anguish because the sin of the world was being placed upon the sinless son of god he did that for you and he did that for me. He took your sin, everything you regret, the real biggies, the, weird, the ones that you never want anyone to know about. He took it all. 
all the misery, not just the past, but the present and the future sin. He became your sin. And God's wrath was poured out on him instead of on you. And in exchange, he offers you his righteousness. He offers you his forgiveness. When you repented, you got a gift. You were given righteousness and holiness. You didn't deserve that. You got what he deserved and he got what you deserved. Many people have a misunderstanding of this. They see this like debt being paid off. They think when you come to Christ, your sins are forgiven. It's like a student in debt. None of you can relate to that. For the students here, for the very few of you who might be in debt, imagine you are £1,000 in debt. That's like being a sinner. And then someone comes and writes a check for £1,000 for you. There's your check. What's your account at now? Zero. And you think, phew, my debt is paid off. What happens the moment you spend one more pounds? You go back into debt. Many people that's what think that's what Christianity is. That God forgives you for your sin, and that's you you're at zero again. Phew, the slate is clean. But what happens the moment I make another mistake? I'm a sinner again. That's an inaccurate view. The Bible doesn't just say he made him a you know sin to be sin on your behalf. The verse goes on. How many glad the verse went on? Because it says, so that you could become the righteousness of God in him. He not only cleared your debt, he credited to your account. He not only gave you the check for the thousands, he gave you a check for millions of thousands of gillions and zillions and billions and zillions and willions. The check was so huge. It was such a huge deposit in your account that you are actually, it's impossible for you ever to go into the red again. You're not just become righteous. You've become the righteousness of God. If there are degrees of righteousness, this is the highest level of righteousness being credited to your account. Wow. When you repented, that took place. It did. Right down in here. Even though emotionally sometimes you're wondering and you're confused, right down in here. That took place for you. Martin Luther said this. Learn to know Christ and him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness and I am your sin. You have put, you've taken upon yourself what is mine and given me what is yours. You became what I, what, sorry, you became what you were not so that I might become what I was not. You became my sin so I could become your righteousness. The divine exchange took place. Now, as far as God is concerned, when you come to God, he no longer sees you as you were, or maybe even as you see yourself. But he sees you now in the light of what Christ has done for you. And that's good news. Isaiah fifty four seventeen, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue that rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Another translation says, their vindication is from me, says the Lord. If you're in an aeroplane, when I used to fly commercial jets, I remember that if I was going to change the direction of the plane, I couldn't just grab the steering wheel and force the direction change. Because the moment I took it easy, just for a second, the autopilot would override and I'd be back going the direction I was going in. And we've done that in life. I will change. I'm gonna, it's, it's January the 1st. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start eating more. I will. And before you know it, you're back to the way you were. Because sheer determination can't change you. The only way true change can take place is when the autopilot is reprogrammed. And that brings me on to my last point. You see, there are two internal changes God makes in your life. The last one I'm going to talk to you about is renewing your mind. And this is your present struggle. Ephesians 2, sorry, Ephesians uh, 4, verse 22 to 24. Put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Verse 23. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Verse 24. 
put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, the two things that changed in you, in your autopilot, there's two things that changed. One has changed, one is changing. The thing that changed, the thing that happened in the past is you repented and you got a new heart. Verses 22 and 24. That change means you have eternal life. That change means you are righteous in the sight of God. That change is, is, is everything about what God did for you. It, it's, that's it. Done. The second change is an essential change as well. And it's called the renewing of your mind. In verse 23 it says, Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. In other words, change the way you view the world. Stop viewing the world the way you used to view it. Start viewing the, way, the world the way God now in the light of what God has done for you, change the way you see it. In the Greek language, this is a Greek word. The, the, the verbs used here are in the present infinitive sense. They're talking about a current practice. While verses 22 and 24, it talks about putting off the old self, putting on the new self. That's talking about past tense. That's what you did when you became a Christian. Verse 23 talks about be renewed in the spirit of your minds. It's talking about a current practice that you need to be engaged in. And these are the two things that will help you change the autopilot of your life so that your actual life can change direction permanently. See, changing the way you think impacts the way you live on earth. Repenting and having a change of heart that is God's doing impacts your eternity. So let me give you some scenarios here. This is, this is, this is the scenarios I see in the world around us. And this is the scenarios the Bible gives us. Scenario number one is a spiritually dead positive thinker. Right? They've got a good life, but they've got a horrible eternity ahead. They're disconnected from God, but they're applying good positive mental attitude approach to life. Good life, but naff eternity. Here's an example of that Jesus gives us in Luke 12, 17 to 21. He thought to himself, hmm, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of goods laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This night, your life will be demanded of you. Who then will get what you prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up for himself things, uh, things for himself, but is not rich towards God. God has no problem with you storing up things for yourself. God has no problem with you being positive in life. God has a problem when you store up things for yourself, but are not rich towards God. You're cold towards God and you're just doing life your way positively. This is the example of the spiritually dead positive thinker. And we, all around us today, there are many examples of wonderful people who are totally ignoring God, but they're having great lives. You see, our message isn't come to God and have a great life, because plenty of people will say, well, my life's great without God. In fact, in the book of Psalms, we see that the psalmist acknowledged that. He said, why is it the wicked prosper? You see, earthly physical prosperity is not ultimately a sign of spiritual prosperity, although it can be. But it's not the ultimate sign. We see here the scenario of the spiritually dead positive thinker. Scenario number two is the spiritually alive negative thinker. This person has a naff life, but has a great eternity. Here's an example. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1 and verse 5. Very radical example, I admit, but it is an example. It is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, that a man has his father's wife. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Whoa. Who had that memory verse this week? Oh, I memorized that, and every time I look in my mirror, I, I confess that. No, that's just nuts. This is one of those verses you think, boy, that was a curveball, God. We understand the Bible is a very serious book. It talks about very real and very serious spiritual issues. And here's the description of a man in the church in Corinth who had sex with his mum or with his stepmom. We don't know. E either way, okay, don't argue about that. Stepmom, mum, doesn't matter. Both bads. 
Paul says, excommunicate the guy. That's what he's meaning. Commit the person to Satan. Half the charismatics would be casting the devil out of him. But Paul says, no, no, give the guy to the devil. So what he's saying is excommunicate, put him out of the church. Why? For the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of judgment. You see, the guy was spiritually alive. But he was here having a really naff life because his mind was wonky-tonk. His life was, he was totally caught up with negativity and lies. He was living in ruts of his old life rather than living in the reality of his new life. And Paul was not saying that they should do anything evil towards him. They were saying, put him out of the church because that kind of stuff will pollute the church. Here's an example of someone who's meant to be a believer trying to set an example to those who are trying to walk with God. It's a bad example. You're no longer welcome in the church. And out of the church, there is no protection, spiritually speaking. And Satan would have a field day with that person. They might end up sick, dying prematurely. But God's verdict was the guy would get saved. Because he's paid such a big check. You have credited to your account righteousness. Even if your life does not look like it. And that's mind-blowing. So who wants to be the spiritually dead? Sorry, the spiritually alive negative thinker. Any volunteers? Don't think so. Then scenario number three is the spiritually alive positive, or should I say truth, thinker. Because not all positive thinking is truth thinking. Sometimes positive thinking is just makey-uppy. But we've got a basis for our positivity. It's called truth. We have a basis. I have a basis for my hope for the future. It's called Jesus. It's called what he did for me in the cross. It's called what he says about me rather than what I say about myself. It's not just a random. It's, it's I'm basing my life as the creation on what the creator says about me rather than just what I make up about myself. And even what I could make up about myself could not be as positive as what God says about me. So here's a spiritual alive, positive thinker. In Destiny Church Edinburgh, I want you to be spiritually alive, positive truth thinkers. And these are the people who have great lives. Don't necessarily mean easy lives. I said that earlier. You're gonna, you've got the current hitting you. I mean great lives, effective lives, loving lives. Lives that love the unchurched. Lives that love the church. Lives that make a difference. Great lives. And yet also great eternities. Here's a description. Third John, any chapter you want, verse 2. There is only one chapter. Beloveds, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Here's the Bible talking about the person who's got it good deep down on the inside, but also it's permeated through every aspect of their life. How does that happen? It happens by the renewing your minds. We saw the journey. Part one was life without God. Part two is true conversion. That's repenting, turning from your old ways, going God's way. And we understand that God's involved in your repentance. But step three is the key to you living the fullness of that life on earth. Not just when you get to heaven, but on the earth. And that's to do with renewing your mind to the truth of what God has done for you. Verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the way you think based on what God has done on the inside of you. How many of you on a daily basis have accusations and condemnation and doubts and fears and anxieties and words spoken about you into your head? Hands up. Truth. Hands up. Honestly, hands up. I'll wait for a bit longer if you want. <laughs> How many people have that? Hands up. They look around you. You thought you were the only one. The reality is we're bombarded with stuff. Sometimes it comes from ourselves, based on our past, based on what others have said. Sometimes it's the devil himself. Sometimes we don't know where it comes from. But I can tell you it's not God. It's not God. What God says about you is great. And you must do everything you can to deal with those thoughts. So here's my advice, two bits of advice. Firstly, be ruthless with negative thoughts. 2 Corinthians 10, 5. We demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We take captive those thoughts. We don't, don't just let those thoughts come and go and say, oh boy, 
Oh boy. Oh, is that true? Oh boy. No. Don't just accept them. Take them captive. I arrest you. Right? Let me illustrate this for you. Volunteer, please. James. James. Let's, let's hear for James, my volunteer. Beth, Beth, can you bring some props, please? Okay, now, James represents bad thoughts. Let's hear for the bad thoughts. Have a seat on the edge here, man. Right, the Bible says we must take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So what do we do with bad thoughts? We've got to be ruthless with the bad thoughts. Right. Sit. So give me some bad thoughts. Huh? No, you're not. Oh, sorry, you're giving an example. Okay. I'm stupid. Do you want to write that? I'm stupid. Okay, any, any other bad thoughts? Huh? We're going to fail. So, stupid. Thanks, Beth. I'm get a photo of this. I'm a failure. What other what other thoughts do we get? Hopeless case. Hopeless case. Any any other thoughts? You all been very. Never Nothing ever works out. What the dark thoughts you get, folks? What the dark thoughts that, that other people get? Not you personally, but. You know that other people might get these thoughts going. God can't help you. That's a dark one. Okay. Any other dark thoughts? End all suicidal thoughts. Okay. God can't help. No one what? No one loves me. You keep it up your bed. We get we get dark thoughts. Oops. Right. Now, what what do we do with our thoughts? The Bible says we take our thoughts captive. You've got to be ruthless with your thoughts. You be aggressive with your thoughts. You be violent with your thoughts. You've got to take those thoughts. This your cheeky rascal. So you've got to take your thoughts captive. You can be ruthless with your thoughts. No mercy. Where did that thought come from? I refuse that thought. That is not going to be my thought. I disassociate from that thought. Nonsense. Now, don't do it out loud. Because I know how many thoughts you get. You're going to go along the street saying, get away from me. People are like, What? Do it silently. Don't be weird. But don't accept lies. Don't accept anything that God wouldn't say about you in your head. Don't give it any legitimacy. Now, here's the problem. I'm out of breath. And the other problem is that our thoughts sometimes are coupled with emotions. So the thought that says, I'm stupid, is confirmed with the way you feel. Now it has a lot of legitimacy in your mind. Because you say, I feel that way. So you let it hang around. Instead of just rejecting it straight away. But since when has your feelings been accurate? Seriously. Since when have your feelings been accurate? You're all over the place. So am I. We're up, we're down, we're thinking people think this about us. We have all these emotions, we suddenly realize they didn't. We have all, tons of stuff going on inside our souls that are totally inaccurate. The ultimate gauge of truth is not how you feel. It's what God says about you. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, Jesus said, will remain forever. So firstly, be ruthless with your thoughts. And here's a couple of things that you can do just to help you with that. Personal discipline of being ruthless, but also maybe become accountable. It might be that some of you need some counseling. Or even, it doesn't even need to be heavyweight counseling. Just have a friend that you can talk to and say, listen, I battle with these thoughts. Can we, we do a Bible study together? 
Maybe you're struggling with thoughts that result in actions, that result in addictions. Then maybe you need to confide in someone who is trustworthy, who understands the love and grace of God, who can help you out of that. That's why we've got leaders in the church. The second thing you've got to deal with negative thoughts is this. You've got to remember what God says about you. You've got to remember what God says about you. You see, if you're just always struggling with what you've said about yourself, and what others have said about you, and what the devil's putting in your head, you're going to be struggling. But you've got to know what God says about you. And do you know what? It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't change overnight. There's a story of the farmer who had all his life driven a Land Rover on this particular farm, and he'd created deep ruts on the driveway up to his farm. He retired and decided to stay on at the farm in his retiral, and he sold the Land Rover and bought a Mini. For the first two years, the Mini kept dropping into the old ruts of the Land Rover. Then eventually, over time, he didn't quit. He ground the base of the Mini to to a, a pulp, But after a while, with rain and with the ground softening and changing, eventually new ruts formed and he could drive up and down that drive with ease. But he couldn't quit. He couldn't couldn't just say, I'm I'm giving up on this. He had to keep going over it consistently, consistently, consistently. You see, you've got to keep reminding yourself what God says about you. Because I promise you, with great consistency, the lies will come your way. With great persistence, the lies will invade your head unwelcomed. They'll come. So with even greater persistency and dedication, you must say, no, no. The Bible doesn't say that, actually. The Bible says that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But I'm stupid. What do you mean I'm stupid? No, no, the Bible says that God thought about me even before I was born and he plans every day ahead for me and he's got great plans for me and I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm not stupid. I'm not a failure. No, no, you you can't rub that off on me that it's not going to work out in the future. God says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Uh, To give you hope and a future. I'm not going to let that fear land in my life. With the same persistency that the lies come, you must return truth. And coming to church helps that. Coming to church every Sunday where every week you hear truth. It's going to help you. And I encourage you, be consistent at church. But more than that, you need to have a discipline in your own life of digging into the Bible, finding truth. Don't just take my word for it. Go find it in the Bible. Buy a Bible from a Christian bookshop. Pick it up and read it and see what God says about you. Grapple with it. Some of the things in the Bible will challenge you emotionally. Boy, challenge you mentally. But it's healthy. It's great. Let it change your life. If you haven't read the Bible before, start in the Gospels. Great place to start. And then also be around home groups. I want to encourage you, if you're not part of a midweek home group, there's about 37 home groups around the city just now. And I encourage you to get connected with a home group. And in a home group environment, you get a chance to reinforce what you hear on Sunday and study the Bible with others. And again, grow in your faith. Overcome the, the lies that are coming. I'm just trying to put things in place, ramparts in your life to help you be strong so that when the lie comes, you've got enough within you to say, no, no, that's a lie. And you can walk in truth. If you want to find out about home groups and find one near you, go to the visitors' table through, through towards the entrance there. I'm going to end with a story. There was a little girl, and it was a rainy, sunny, uh, a rainy afternoon, and the little girl was obviously a little bit agitated, nothing to do, and the father was trying to get almost from work. So he said to the little girl, just to try and keep out of mischief, listen, I'm going to give you something to do just to keep you occupied. And he thought, what can I do to keep her busy for long enough so that I'm able to get on with my work? So he got a newspaper and he found a, a newspaper with a picture of the world map. And he got scissors and he, he kind of cut up this world map into lots of little pieces. And he gave her some sellotape and he said, go and put the world back together again. So she disappeared off to a wee corner in the room thinking this, he thought right, that will keep her occupied for the next two hours. Anyway, five minutes later, she reappeared with this sellotaped up picture of the world map. Said, How did you do that? I said, oh, it was easy, Dad. There was a picture of a man's face on the other side, and I just knew if I could put the man back together, then the world would be fine. <laughs> and you know, I believe that um, light, change is hard, and, but, but I do believe change is essential. Woe to the world if it doesn't turn to God. 
Turn to God. Life without God is horrendous. Turn to him with everything within you. Give him your whole life. And then now you've turned to God. Walk with God. Walk in truth. Believe truth. Battle the lies. And walk on whole, living an eternally blessed and an earthly blessed life. And I believe one life at a time, our mission as a church is for you folks to flourish and for you folks and myself to impact our city so that our city can flourish. One life at a time. Let's pray. God, we honor you, Father, for Paul's wisdom in in Ephesians 4. Thank you, God, for the journey you've taken us from. God, we truly were ignorant towards you. We were caught up in our own lives, pursuing our own agendas. But then, God, we turned to you and you turned to us and we got saved and we repented and we turned and you gave us a new heart and you gave us an eternal life and you gave us a hope. And God, we're so grateful to you for the incredible gift of eternal life you've given us. God, I pray for this church here, God. I pray for my precious friends. God, whether this be their their first time with us today or whether this be their umpteenth time, My prayer is, God, that they will know the love of God. They will know the freedom of God that you offer them. And they will walk in truth. That they will live eternally blessed lives. And they will live on this earth a life that is blessed because they're overcoming. Because they're living changed lives. Holy Spirit, move among us, I pray. Okay, just while you're in God's presence, take a moment to respond to God. If you feel particularly challenged or spoken to, and you put things right with God, it might be that you've been a Christian, and you're one of the Christians that Paul's writing to. In theory, you're a Christian, but you've been living like the world. And that's okay if you call yourself the world, but you call yourself a Christian. And the way you're living is not acceptable. And Paul challenges you, and God challenges you, and I challenge you as I challenge myself. Make a choice today to put things right. Live courageously God's way. It might be today that you don't know God at all. And in the inside, you know that you're not alive, that you're not connected with God. But you know, Peter, I want to know God. You're saying I want to be forgiven. I want to have not just forgiveness, I want to have that knowing that I'm righteous I want to know that I'm eternally safe I'm willing to turn from my old ways and go God's ways if that's you today then I want to help you do that just now just while we're all praying if you want to make that commitment to turn from your ways and follow God's ways to believe in Jesus then I invite you to pray this prayer with me just now let this be your prayer of commitment to God So quietly under your breath, just repeat this prayer after me, line for line. Dear Lord God, I acknowledge that without you I am lost. And I've lived without you for too long. So today, God, I make a decision. Today I choose to turn my life over to you. To the best of my ability, I'm going to stop living my way. I'm going to start living your way. Change me, God, from the inside out, I pray. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you died for me. I believe you took my sin upon yourself. And I ask you right now for your forgiveness your gift of righteousness thank you I believe in the third day you rose again I believe you're alive right now today I pledge my allegiance to you I make you lord of my life I give you first place thanks for hearing my prayer for accepting me today as your child Jesus' name. Amen. Keep your eyes closed. If anyone prayed that prayer, 
and you made that decision, then I believe you've just made the biggest and best decision you will ever make. And I believe God has heard your prayer. If that's you today and you prayed that prayer, I want to ask God's blessing on your life at this very moment. Now, all I'm going to ask you to do is this. In order to know who I'm praying for, if you, if, just to know that if you can let me know that you prayed that prayer just by very simply raising your hand. If you're here today, thank you. Thank you. Anyone else, you prayed that prayer. You made that decision. Quickly put your hand up so I can see it. Anyone else before I pray? Thank you. Anyone else? God, I pray for my dear friends today who have put their hand up. They've put their hand up signifying that they have made that decision before you. Signifying that they've prayed for your forgiveness. And that from now on they're willing to follow you, Jesus. I pray right now into their lives. You pour in your love. I pray that they would know deep in their hearts the acceptance and love of God. I pray, God, they would go from here knowing that deep down they're changed. And I pray from now on, God, help them to plug their lives into church where they can grow in their faith and make a difference with their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, in a minute we're going we're gonna to worship. My friends who put their hand up there, that's a great decision you've made. Good decision. God has heard your prayer. And uh, before you go, I'm going to get a couple of my uh, prayer partners to come and connect with each one of you. Put your hands up. We've got a pamphlet we want to give you explaining what it means to be a Christian and encouraging you to take, take those steps. But what we're going to do just now is we're going to have communion just now. We're going to break bread.